Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning. To come into your presence. Where scripture tells us we can find help in the time of need. And comfort, clarity, rest and assurance and peace for our souls. Where we can intercede for our community. We can lift our voices to a God whom we know hears us and responds, who is tender and merciful and kind, good, sovereign, and powerful, present even in these deepest places of pain and loss. We ask that this morning we would experience your presence together, that we would know your love, and that the truth found in your word would be helpful to us this morning as we seek to process through these things and as we seek to help others that we would have clarity, insight, comfort, and strength from your word. Please help us in these things, Lord. Please help me now to be a faithful servant of yours who serves well the church and the community for the glory of Jesus Christ. It's in that name that we pray. Amen. Well, I think that one of the first things that we wonder as God's people and even broader as a community in times like this, is where is God in this whole thing? When homes are burning, when mountains are sliding into communities, when people are swept away, I think we all wonder, secretly and aloud, where is God to be found in such times? And I think if we're honest we would say, especially for those who are closest to these things, that at times like this, God can feel distant to us when so much is easily swept away. And I think if we're honest, we would also have to say that it seems as though in times like this, many prayers go unanswered. For there were many who prayed for their homes and property and family and Those prayers seem to go unanswered. But we would have to say from everything that we know about God in Scripture and answering the question, where is God in times like these? We would have to say from Scripture that God is with us in times like these. Regardless of how it feels, no matter what it seems might be happening or not happening or what prayers seem to go unanswered, Scripture teaches us undoubtedly that God is with those who suffer. Scripture declares in multiple places that God is near to the brokenhearted. That is who God is. We think about great passages like this one in Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning comes. And it's important as people of faith, as Jesus' followers, to really lean into these promises at times like these. Because again, life doesn't feel this way necessarily for everybody right now. 
doesn't always feel as though God is a very present help in these dark days. So then, that's when we lay hold of faith in God and what God has said. We do so for ourselves as we seek comfort, and we do so for our community as they need help. On behalf of our community, by faith, we lean into these promises, and the promises of God are bigger than our feelings and bigger than what we've lost. We believe them to be ultimately always and forever and absolutely true. By faith now, the call on us as Jesus follows is to lean into promises such as this, that God is near to the brokenhearted. And our community needs us to do that as the church. Our community needs us to believe God's promises on their behalf even, and then to intercede for the community that they would experience these promises of God, even right now, that they would experience such things. He says that he is the God of all comfort who opens up a door of hope in the valley of Achor in the valley of trouble. And that his nearness is our good. That's why we've come to seek him today. We lean into these things by faith. But even sharper questions linger in our collective mind as a community, when we endure things like fire and floods together. There are sharper questions, such as, how could a good God allow such things to happen? And, is this series of events the judgment of God on our community? These are sharp questions that linger in our collective mind. Let's think for a moment about that latter question. Are these series of events the judgment of God on our community? We've all been talking about how the nearness of the two events seems uncanny. That we had unprecedented fires, and then we had unprecedented rain. So close to one another. You know, we haven't seen rain like that in hundreds of days in this community. And we've all been talking about and so asking questions about the proximity of the events to one another. Believers and non-believers, people who have no faith, would not profess Christ, are wondering about. Several people have mentioned to me in the last few days, some in jest, some in all seriousness, some people of faith, some with no faith, have mentioned to me, wow, the Lord must be coming soon at any moment as evidenced in their minds by these events. And we have a proclivity, we have the tendency to associate extreme weather events and natural disasters with the return of Christ. Because some of the Bible's apocalyptic passages mention things like fire and smoke, hail, earthquake, plagues, etc., And living here, especially, we get deeply concerned when things are not like 72 degrees and sunny. (laughs) The Lord must be coming back. It's under 70. (laughs) More seriously, though, God's track record 
is what allows us to even have the paradigm to ask the question, is this the judgment of God? For God did at one other time flood the entire earth in judgment of humanity. And there were great natural disasters and plagues when God judged Egypt. And as mentioned before, eschatological passages in scripture seem to say that in the future God will indeed use natural phenomenon as part of his judgment on the world. But God does not usually work in the world that way. If he did, we would see much more of this kind of thing on a widespread scale. Think, for example, of Psalm 130 and what it says. If you, Lord, if you, Lord should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there's forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Notice what the first part says. Lord, if you mark iniquities, who could stand? In other words, Lord, if you were in the business of one-for-one retribution with regards to our sin, then none of us would be able to stand. Do you hear that? If God were in the business of one-for-one retribution at this day and age with regards to our sin, then which one of us could stand? But with him, the Bible tells us, there is forgiveness that he might be feared. And because God offers forgiveness for humanity, to humanity through Christ for sin, he is unimaginably patient with people. Think about the New Testament passage in Second Peter that talks about God eventually judging the world and his promise for Christ to return. The Lord isn't really slow about his promise, that is, the promise for Christ to return and judge the world as some people think about slow. No, he is being patient for your sake. Listen here. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Hear the word of God. He's patient as it pertains to judgment because he doesn't want anyone to be destroyed in the context here is judgment, but he wants everybody to repent. And the idea there is that they might be forgiven. In this age of grace, God's general approach in light of the cross of Christ, his atoning death upon the cross for us, his resurrection from the dead, God's general approach in light of the cross of Christ is this. His judgment and his wrath have been poured out on Jesus so that forgiveness might be made available to us. And God then is currently actively working in the world to bring people to himself through Christ that they might be saved from wrath and judgment. Indeed, about Jesus, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says... We are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. And Jesus himself said in John three seventeen that he did not come into the world to judge the world, but the, the world might be saved through him. 
So in our world, God is seeking to bring people to himself through Christ and his finished work on the cross, that their sins might be forgiven, that they might escape judgment and wrath. And his approach in that is mercy and kindness. Scripture says that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Look what Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Or as it says in other translations, his kindness leads us to repentance. Humanity is meant to realize in this time after the finished work of Christ on the cross that God is trying to draw all of humanity to himself through kindness and to not think little of that or to be dismissive of that or to miss that. Now I want you to see what the next verse says. Verse 5 says, But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I want you to notice what that says. God is currently seeking to draw humanity to himself by his kindness. If his kindness is dismissed or rejected, if his grace is refused, then all that we are doing in our sin is storing up for ourselves wrath on the coming day of judgment. There is a day that is set for judgment in the future when Christ returns to judge the world in righteousness. But that day is not now. So, listen to me carefully. And answering the question, we cannot, with any real authority, declare that we know events such as we've witnessed lately to be the direct judgment of God. We can say, with all of the authority of Scripture, that God prefers mercy to judgment and has delayed judgment for the final day and is now working in the world by His Spirit and kindness to draw us to repentance. So, as Bible-believing Christians, we need to be very, very reserved in declaring such things to be the direct judgment of God on a community. To stand on biblical New Testament ground is to declare the merciful and gracious presence of God with us in Christ and to display actively his kindness to those who are suffering. Stand on solid biblical New Testament ground is to seek and pursue and look for God's redemptive purposes in these events. To bring mercy to the suffering, to offer salvation to the lost, words of comfort about God's presence, and his kindness. And to acknowledge a sharper edge here, to also at times like these, call people to repentance. Not because God is currently judging them, 
but because God will one day judge the whole world. And this feels sharp at a time like this to say we ought to be calling people to repentance. And timing is everything. But this is actually what Jesus leads us to do at times like this. We look now at our text in Luke chapter 13. We'll put it on the screen for you in the New Living Translation. Before we read that, we realize that here Jesus is having almost the same conversation that we're having with some people that were around him when tragedy struck close to home for them. Luke 13.1 says, About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Jesus asked. Is that why they suffered? Not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. Now notice what's happening here. Jesus and his followers were from Galilee. So when they heard about this atrocity of Pilate murdering Galileans while they were worshiping in the Jewish temple, it's very close to them. They certainly would have known some of those people. Or maybe there would have been one degree of separation, as this situation is for many of us. So this was tragedy close to home for them. And of course, when the tower in Siloam collapsed in Jerusalem and killed those 18 people, that also would have been close to home. Jerusalem was their spiritual center. They spent time there. Three times a year they gathered there to worship the Lord. And what is evident from Jesus' comments in light of those two tragedies, the slaughter of the corrupt ruler, the collapse of the tower, what is evident from Jesus' comments is that what lingered in his audience's collective mind was the very question that we have been wrestling with. Were these events the direct judgment of God on those people? And the assumption in their wondering was that those people deserved judgment. That is why Jesus answered the way that he did. He knew what they were thinking in their hearts and minds. He knew their assumptions and their thoughts and their questions about it. Their assumption in their wondering was that those people deserved judgment. And I want you to notice what Jesus does here. Jesus corrects their assumptions by saying that we all deserve judgment. And therein lies the problem with trying to say something like these fires and these floods are God's judgment in a particular place on a particular group of people. Because if them, then why not us? And so woe to the person who says in the face of such tragedies that they were somehow deserving of God's judgment and excuses themselves from God's judgment. Jesus corrects that view and says, if you want to talk about God judging bad people, we will all then perish in judgment. 
He says in his response here that those events were not a direct act of judgment, but that what people ought to do in response to these things is know that God will one day act in direct judgment. So people ought to repent now. People everywhere ought to repent now. And what God is doing in light of the cross is leaving room for repentance now. Next, then, in the next few verses, Jesus, consistent with what we have said previously today, reveals something about how God is working in the world since Christ's coming. He gives it to his audience here in parable or story form, the next few verses. Then Jesus told a story, right, to illustrate. A man planted a fig tree in his garden and came again and again to see if there was any fruit on it. But he was always disappointed. Finally, he said to his gardener, I have waited three years and there hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down. It's just taken up space in the garden. The gardener answered, Sir, give it one more chance. Leave it another year, and I'll give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. If we get figs next year, fine. If not, then you can cut it down. I want you to see, in response to people's questions and assumptions about the judgment of God, the way that Jesus in a picture story reveals the grace and mercy of God and the way that God is working in the world. Jesus here talks about a second and third and fourth chance for bad trees. A second, third, and fourth chance for bad trees. And we might think about the gardener as representing the spirit and the spirit's work in the world. Notice how the gardener responds. Let me give this bad tree special attention and lots of fertilizer. Contrary to the idea of just giving up on it and cutting it down, let me be very kind to the bad tree. Let me give it special attention and all that it needs to be well and give it another chance. This is a picture of God drawing humanity with kindness over and over and over again, though we are bad trees. Now, we can't be tone deaf to what Jesus is doing here in this passage in Luke 13. He he calls in the verses we looked at previously for people to repent in light of tragedy. People everywhere. And when Jesus does that, That is an act of love. That is a warning of love. That is an invitation for people to escape judgment when in their minds they're wondering about judgment. Because God takes no delight in the perishing of even the wicked, the most wicked among us. Remember what God says about himself in Ezekiel 33, 11. As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die? So Jesus used those two tragedies 
wicked rulers slaughtering people in the midst of worship, a tower falling on people in that city, and his audience's assumptions about them to call people's attention everywhere to their need to repent in light of an actual day of God's judgment that was coming. And to illustrate how God is working in the world through grace and mercy and forgiveness, I will show the bad trees special attention and give them plenty of fertilizer. It all reminds us that God is incredibly good, merciful, gracious, passionate, beyond what we could ever imagine. So perhaps then in our minds, as we look at that, we begin to think, If God is good and merciful and kind and is giving bad trees special attention and plenty of water and fertilizer and trying to lead people to repentance with kindness, why then does he allow horrific events such as the fires and the floods to happen to us? The other sharp question. And in answering that question, we must acknowledge one of the most basic assertions of Scripture. That God is sovereign. We have two very basic assertions about Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. We've already brought them both up. God is good and God is sovereign. God is both good and God is sovereign. Sovereignty of God is nothing to be trifled with. The sovereignty of God is a fixed pole in Scripture. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. He holds all things together. He rules and reigns on high. He knows all things, both actual and possible. He is sovereign. So then we must, in all humility, confess that God does indeed allow such things to take place. We do not need to say that God directly instigates such things, nor is he directly to blame. We wonder then, how does that work, and who, if anyone, is to blame? We have to realize that we live in a world that is in chaos. We live in a world that is broken. You might think about the world and everything in it. The planets, the stars, the heavens, all ecosystems, plant and animal kingdoms, all of humanity, the way that we think, the way that we feel, the way that things function as one giant operating system. And the operating system has been corrupted The operating system is broken. And though it still operates, everything within it is affected by its brokenness at the core. There is nothing in the entire system that escapes the fact that the operating system is broken. And so we live in a world, world, excuse me, where people in power commit atrocities, like we read about Pilate. And towers fall on people. Fires burn cities and floods wash them away. All evidence of the fact that we live in a broken system, in a broken world. Why is it broken? 
When God created everything, he created everything as good, non-broken, not broken. God said seven times, it is good. God created everything as good and to function that way. And God blessed humanity and placed us in the garden and invited us to live under his good rule. And in doing that, he gave us free will that we might truly know love and his love. And he lovingly warned us that if we rejected his rule, that our own choices would lead to death. He said to Eve, the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. And as always, God was right. And as always, God kept his word. And we, as usual, rejected his loving rule and rebelled. And we are together now as the world reaping the consequences of our rebellion. In the form of a broken system, a world that now contains death, which God never intended, and everything that reeks of death and chaos. We live in a world that is under a curse. A curse from God. For we rebelled. And God told us what life would be like if we rejected his loving rule. And all of creation, scripture tells us, experiences the effects of this curse and this brokenness. Romans 8 speaks of all creation experiencing it when it says against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. For we all know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. Nothing is untouched by the broken operating system that was broken by man's rebellion. All of creation suffers under the feelings of it. Things and systems and natural laws that God created as good and for blessing have not escaped this brokenness, this corruption. I want us to think about storms in particular for a moment. In his sovereignty, God created and ordained natural laws and systems of nature. And they're supposed to work in certain ways. And they too have been corrupted by sin in the world. They have been touched and effective so that they now also experience and bring death and pain and things associated with it. God in his sovereignty established natural laws like gravity, And gravity generally works. And God, though he's established systems, weather systems, gravity, and natural law, he's established these systems, and he lets them work the way that they work. He is always present within all of it, imminent, theologians say, present and working within. Indeed, he holds all things together. Remember, he is sovereign. But he's created certain systems that he allows to work and those systems are affected by the fall, by our rebellion, by sin, by the curse. And so things go wrong in this world. Things fail to work the way that God intended them to. 
sometimes God intervenes directly. That is, by definition, a miracle. I'm not saying that we believe in deism where God is aloof from it and just lets it go. We believe in theism. God is present with us in it, holds it all together. But in his sovereignty, he lets things work even as they are corrupted by sin. On occasion, he intervenes. That is, by definition, a miracle. For example, when he told the wind and the waves to stop and they stopped. That was a miracle. The natural falling condition of things were that there were wind and waves that were threatening the lives of the disciples. And because we live in this world that is affected by the fall, bad things happen to all people. Things that God never intended. And yes, God allows it because humanity chose it. But we need to realize that God allows such things with tears. He allowed Lazarus to die, but he stood with Martha and Mary and wept at his death. Jesus wept over Jerusalem and their circumstances and their sin. God allows it because humanity chose it, but with tears. The good news is God will not always allow it. There is coming an end to the chaos. There is coming an ultimate day of repair, of renewal, when everything that has been corrupted and gone wrong will be restored and set right. And God has already begun to correct the chaos and the sending of his son, Christ Jesus, for us. Christ came into the world to begin to correct the chaos by bringing the kingdom. And Jesus, in all that he taught and in all of his miracles, was showing us what a corrected world would look like. For he had authority over death. That's what a corrected world will look like. He had authority over all the winds and the waves, and they were calm. There was restoration, there was healing, there was renewal, there was love, there was forgiveness, there was ultimate acceptance. Jesus showed us what life in the kingdom without the curse would look like. And to deal with the curse, the book of Galatians tells us that Jesus became a curse for us. We have been affected by sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us that Jesus became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took the curse for all of humanity upon the cross. Jesus took the sin of all of humanity upon the cross that he might save us from the curse and from the wrath, that we might know forgiveness and renewal and redemption, that we might experience an ultimate day where chaos and death and decay are defeated forever. God has done this for us in Christ. He told us that there would be days like these. But he has also told us that it won't always be like this. There's coming a day where there will be no more chaos. Jesus has begun this work through his work on the cross. And all that he did in the gospels, the healings, the resurrections, 
the calming, the confrontation of evil were pictures of that future life we will have with him. Romans 8 goes on to speak about it and says, what we suffer now is nothing to be compared with the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Again, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. There's coming a day of glorious freedom from death and decay. That day will involve the judgment of all of humanity and all of things. So today, we live in this tension of the already not yet. God's kingdom has already come. It is not yet here in fullness. And we see glimpses of both. We see glimpses of resurrection and healing and newness, but we also feel the reverberations of death, decay, and chaos. And what all people everywhere ought to do when we see these things is repent of their sins. For forgiveness has been brought to us in Christ. And he promises us a better day. The book of Revelation speaks of this day when it says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, you better write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. God is offering us a better day in Christ. And he's offering us now, as we go through the suffering, deep comfort in Christ. You know, much of comfort is based on something that is a hope in the future. We all together look forward to hope for this day. Biblical hope doesn't mean, oh man, I really hope it happens. Like I hope I have the right lotto numbers. It's not like that. Biblical hope is something that is based on a sure promise of God that brings us comfort today. The promise of God is there is coming a better day, a reversal, a renewal, a day of glorious resurrection and freedom from death and decay. And so we can think differently in hard times again when we look at Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. We remember that he is actually present with us and that he is actually working within. And so as the church, we take this hope and these promises and this comfort and we take them to people during this time. We take them to people during this time. Jesus is the light of the world, but we are the little lights. And so we go forward in love and in service. We're going to serve in the days coming everybody that we can. We're going to love everyone that we can. We're going to love them with hugs. We're going to love them with generosity. We're going to love them with work. We're going to love them with kindness. And we're going to love them enough to tell them the truth about their sin in Jesus. Timing is everything. But we have been sent for such a time as this to tell the world the truth about Jesus. 
that he is the one who saves us from the day when the wrath of God actually will come. And we pray. We'll see you Tuesday night and we'll pray. And we, as God's people, should practice humility and gratitude. We're all in this room, so we're all okay. We ought to be incredibly thankful for that. And then we also, I think, I've been thinking this week as God's people, if this world in chaos is the results of sin and rebellion, shouldn't we have less to do than with sin and rebellion? And more to do with truth and righteousness? And we trust in God, even in the darkest times. We believe that he will once again bring us into a place of abundance. Final scripture, we went through fire and through flood, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. You know, that was present tense for them. It might be future tense for us as a community, but we trust God to do that. And we will say together as a community, we went through fire We went through flood, but God brought us to a place of abundance. Lord, that you would help us to lay hold of the abundance that we have in Christ. To live with a sure hope of your goodness, your work of renewing all things. And to be faithful ambassadors of yours in these days, to represent you well, to love and serve our community well, to tell the truth about Jesus, even though we've seen much destruction, God, we thank you for all the places where we see your kindness, and that your kindness is leading us to repentance. And we've come into your house to give you offerings and sacrifices of praise. For you are worthy at all times. And as we said already, you are present in our deepest places of pain and despair. So because you're worthy of it, we worship you now, Christ. And because our community needs to see Christ exalted, we worship you now, Christ. Because you rule and you reign and all of our hope is in you, we worship you, Jesus. And because in your presence we find healing and peace and the fullness of joy, we worship you, Jesus. As we take communion today, we thank you, Christ, for the cross where you won our forgiveness and you defeated death and chaos. And as we take communion today, we look forward to and we proclaim the day when you come again to set right everything that has gone wrong. Thank you, Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In the interim, help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.